Good morning. What a great season. What a great time. What a great time of worship to set our mind and our hearts and our attention upon the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, our focus is, of course, upon peace. Last week, we talked about the hope that we have in Christ. And this morning, as we have heard read and as we have already prayed, we thank God for the peace that comes in Christ. As we get into this study this morning, our focus is upon Mary. And what do we know about Mary? Much has been made about Mary by different churches and different religions throughout the years. As we read just a moment ago, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So what can we learn about this woman who played such an important role in history, such an important role in salvation history. A few things just kind of right off the top. And here in Luke, Mary was in Nazareth, which was in the region of Galilee. We know that she was a virgin. She had never been with a man. We also know that she was engaged to a man. And I want to tell you a little bit about the wedding customs of the day. In our culture today, You see a girl or you see a guy that you like and you ask them out or you spend time with them and you date and you kind of say, all right, is this working? Is this not working? And you kind of decide maybe you fall in love. And then when you fall in love, the groom will, the man will ask the woman to marry him or vice versa. The woman will ask the man to marry her and there'll become a period of engagement. And then following the engagement comes the marriage. Is that pretty much how it went for most of us? You're not going to tell me, are you? I was going to tell you about my, my uh, date, dating of Suzanne. I will briefly. I was an interpreter at, at, for a church, and I was a minister to the deaf, and I was interpreting one Sunday morning. And this first-time guest came in, and I knew it was a first-time guest because I'd have seen her. I'd have known she'd been there before. She came walking in the back door, and she's just gorgeous, beautiful. And I was talking to the deaf people kind of at the front over on this side, and we were just kind of signing and talking, and I, she caught my eye, and I saw her walk past, and I, she just caught my attention, and, and I just followed her with my, <laughs> with my eye as she walked out of the door. And when I looked back at the deaf people, they were all laughing. They were like, aha, caught you. Well, I spent the next several months trying to catch her. Uh, we went out, we dated, we, our first date was to a church Valentine's banquet, how about that? We still have pictures as a matter of fact. Uh, anyway, we, we, we certainly fell in love and then uh, one of those long conversations where we were talking about our future, what God would have in store for us, what we wanted for our futures. Uh, we might have different stories on that. I think she asked me to marry her. She thinks I asked her to marry me. But however it worked out, we agreed that this was the right plan, and we got engaged. And so a year later or so, we got married, and God has been gracious and good. That is not how courtship was in this day. In this day, you would have families, and many times the young girl that would be betrothed would be about 13 or 14 years old. Do we have any 13, 14, or 15-year-olds in the room? Yeah, we do, all right? So this would be about the time you'd be getting engaged to be married. But here's the interesting thing. Many times you would not have even met your fiancé yet. You might know his family. You might would come across him, 
but you wouldn't have spent any meaningful time with him at all, and in some cases not even met him. And your parents would have arranged the marriage. There's the man, here's the woman, this will join our families together, and typically it's a contract, there's binding. And so when the Bible talks about betrothal, Mary was betrothed, she was espoused, she was to be the spouse of Joseph. I want you to understand we had Joseph here, we had Mary here. They had not come together in any meaningful way, certainly not in any physical way. And yet their agreement to be married was binding. It was like a marriage covenant. As a matter of fact, you couldn't get out of a betrothal simply. There was a process that had to be gone through with to dissolve even the betrothal period. And so we know that she was from Nazareth. We know that she was a virgin. She know that she was a young Jewish girl, probably 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, who was be, or could have been as young as 13, probably 15 or 16, who was betrothed to be married. It's a very different circumstance that she was under. We know that while she was pure and engaged and waiting, the angel Gabriel was sent to her from God with a very important message. She was going to have a son. But not just any son, a special son. Remember, she was confused at his greeting, concerned by it. And he told her, fear not, you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You're going to be pregnant and have a boy. And you shall call his name Jesus, which is significant. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, we do also know that that caused a big amount of confusion. There was a mystery in her mind. How can this be? How can I become with child? How can I be pregnant? How can I conceive a child? I've not, never been with a man. I'm a virgin. And the angel's reply was this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore... The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he went on to talk about the amazing birth of uh, pregnancy, uh, coming birth of Elizabeth. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And she's already six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible with God. And we also know Mary's heart, by the way. One of the things that we know very quickly is that Mary said, okay. She said, behold. I'm a handmaid, I'm the servant, I'm willing. Use me how you would use me. Let it be according to your word. Now, I do want to point out a few things about Mary because there's a lot of false things out there that have been taught that are not part of Scripture. Mary, her conception was not immaculate. Mary was just a girl. She was in the line of Adam and Eve. She was a sinner in need of a Savior. She was also... Devout, She was very familiar with Scripture, raised in a Jewish household, and having gone to church, she would have memorized Scripture. She would have known all the stories about the Messiah that was to come. She needed a Savior. We see that in the song that she sang, Oh God, my Savior. And she was willing to serve, that he had looked at the humble estate of his servant, of her. And so this morning as we look at Mary and as we talk about Christmas, I want us to, the birth of Christ, I'm going to do it under the heading of three things. There's the mystery of Christ's birth, of Mary giving birth to Christ. There's the mystery. Then there is the meaning, very important. And then there is the majesty, the mystery, the meaning, and the majesty of Jesus' birth. First of all, the mystery, there are things that we can't understand about the amazing miracle of the virgin birth. 
Uh, uh, to have a baby requires a dad and a mom. It requires two people coming together. It requires the joining together of a seed and an egg. And yet there was no birth like Jesus. Mary was a virgin, and I would certainly not be surprised because of her knowledge of Scripture if she had not reflected upon the Scripture that was recorded in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall when uh, God spoke a curse upon the serpent, and he said, I will put enmity, enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. The the, the progeny, the descendant, the seed of woman, speaking of a, a, a at least in indicating the type of birth that she would have. And of course, she would certainly be very familiar with the prophet Isaiah, who said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Speaking to Ahaz, but also speaking to all of Israel, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew goes on to explain that, or the angel comes when Matthew's writing and recording how God told Joseph about the circumstance. He said, Listen, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. And he quoted Isaiah 7 14 as well. With the additional statement, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is a mystery. Even though the prophets had foretold it, even though Mary embraced it, we also find that Joseph had to come to terms with it. Here's Joseph. He's ready to, to proceed with his life. He has a fiance. He has been preparing a home for her. He has been making sure he has a trade and a, a craft and ability to provide for his family. But before he and Mary can come together, she's pregnant. What would you think? He, being a just man and a righteous man, thought whatever the cause, I'm sure he thought she's just unfaithful. I mean, what else was there to think? But he didn't want to call her out and he didn't want to embarrass her and he didn't want to bring her before the people and publicly dissolve their union. And so he thought, we'll just dissolve this privately. We'll let her deal with the consequences of her situation. But when he went to sleep, an angel came and spoke to him. I spoke to him in a vision and said, hey, listen, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She's never been with a man. This is from the Holy Spirit. And, it's no spe and it is a special child. This is the Savior. This is the Son of God. So there's a mystery here. A pregnant girl who had never been with a man. But why? Why does it matter? Why is it important? Why is this such a big deal? Because a lot of people don't like it. Satan hates it. Many deny it. I don't know if you guys have, have ever engaged conversation with people who don't have a relationship with Christ or people who have been maybe in church and then out of church and like, well, there are just some things that just are too much. And I just can't believe in the virgin birth. Richard Dawkins, many of you will be familiar with him, wrote that the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda. And they are effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. In other words, he's too intelligent to believe in the mystery of the virgin birth or any other miracle of Scripture. But I have to tell you, I'm really pleased that we have a God who does not limit himself by his own creation. That God can do... What's impossible with God? How can this be, Mary? With God, nothing is impossible. 
But the reality of the virgin birth of Jesus through this young girl is essential to the gospel and to our salvation. Just a couple of points as we go through this when we talk about the mystery. We need to know that a Savior is needed. We start there. We need a Savior. Mankind needs a Savior. The Messiah, the anointed one, had been promised. Remember that Elizabeth, speaking of Mary, said, Blessed are you who believe that the promise is being fulfilled. You're willing to be used. Mankind needs a Savior. Who else was born without sin? Or who else was, was, began life without sin? Maybe a better question. You see, there was the first man who was made from dust. His name was Adam. And when Adam was created and his wife Eve taken from his side, when Adam was created, Adam was created without sin. He was perfectly righteous and perfect in fellowship and union and harmony with God. The Bible talks about them walking through the, the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. And there was peace. There was hope. There was every need satisfied and met. But then we come to the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. And they didn't just make a mistake. I want you to understand this because I hear this so often from so many people. Well, God must be a really bad guy to, to punish them so severely over a simple mistake. It wasn't a simple mistake. It is the creature looking, at the rebe the, the, looking rebelliously at his creators. It was Adam made of dirt looking at glorious holy God and saying, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. It was rebellion of the worst kind. It was denial. And God had already told them that if you do what I tell you not to do, the one thing out of all the trees in the garden, the one thing I tell you not to do, if you do that, there's a consequence, and the consequence is death. They sinned. They rebelled. These creatures of dust turned their back on their glorious creation, creator, and the penalty was death. See, Adam had been created in the image of God, but now... That image in Adam was forever marred. It was forever broken. It was forever damaged. It was scuffed, worn. There's a problem that began in Adam and that continues with all. All of Adam's descendants are now born in the image of Adam. It does not mean that we don't have characteristics of the image of God in us. It does not mean that we are not valued because of we are God's creation and in, in many ways the crown of God's creation. It does mean, however, that none of us have peace with God until we find peace with God in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one would claim to be sinless, would you? Anybody here not sin? Never heard anybody that bold. No one would claim to be sinless. By nature, by choice, by practice, and by birth, all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Our statement here, remember, is that everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. Romans chapter 5, and you, you really ought to write this down. This is a great chapter for you to read and get really familiar with. Go with over and over again. Romans chapter 5. You see how that there was a time when we were enemies with God. Uh, when, when we were uh, working against him ungodly, rebellious. And yet God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that having been saved by his death, much more we are saved through his life. 
And then he has the comparison in Romans chapter 5. And he says, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, being made right, and leads to life for all men. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have in contrast here Adam and the fall, and then we have the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that qualifies him as a Savior. So a Savior is needed, but not just any Savior. God could just wave his hand and do this or do that. A Savior is needed who is a man. Why? Because men sinned. In the Old Testament, you remember the stories how they would bring a lamb or a goat or a bull and they would offer it as a sacrifice as part of their worship? Other than barbecue, it doesn't sound like a very good plan, does it? Why did God establish that pattern in the Old Testament? He established it pointing to his plan. He was establishing the pattern that there has to be a penalty paid when the law is broken. And if someone else will pay the penalty then the one who is actually guilty can be set free. And the model for that that he began to establish was a goat or a lamb or a bullock. And the people, were, even the, 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 there's a, a, an animal they called the scapegoat. And they would it symbolically lay, the priest would lay his hands upon the head of the goat, symbolizing all of the sins of the people laid upon the goat. And then the goat would be let out of the camp to, to be destroyed. And Hebrew says that was a pattern that was established to indicate that there is a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice, who is able to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin, everybody's sin, from the beginning of time. And it's certainly not a goat, and it's certainly not a lamb, and it's certainly not a bullock. It has to be a perfect human being. In Hebrews chapter 2, it, it, the Bible it, uh, brings this out. He says, therefore, since we, people, children, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, took, partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham, listen to this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the requirements of the law for the sins of the people. Had Jesus himself been, he had to be a human. He had to be fully man, but he also had to be fully God. He had to be perfect and perfectly righteous Every human is marred by sin, as we've already said. There's none righteous to be found. If Jesus were the son of Mary and Joseph, or Mary and the son of any other man, he would not be qualified to be the Savior. He would not be God. Since the fall, only God is perfectly righteous. Uh, I saw a, a thing on the computer the other day. I'm always a little hesitant to do this, but I'm going to throw it out there. You guys ever hear of Dr. Russell A. Barkley? You may not. It's okay. He's a uh, neuropsychologist dealing primarily with children and their parents. 
And one of the things that he has said recently, by the way, it's not new, but it's being reemphasized, is that children are not a blank slate. Have you heard that? Some of us, some people have the idea that when a child is born, they're just a blank slate. And you can determine their temperament, their personality, their likes, their dislikes. It's up to you as a parent to make sure your kid turns out good. And what he says, it, by the way, is what Mendel has said and what others, geneticists and urologists have said and biologists have said for years. That's not the case. Your child is actually the sum total of all of the genetics Dominant and recessive from both contributors to this child, the father and the mother. And it goes back for generations. It's important that we note, I think it's important, that he says, the law of genetics, every individual is the sum total of the characteristics, recessive or dominant, in its two progenitors, in its two parents. Now, don't stumble over this, all right? But here's the point. Jesus needed an earthly mom, and he got a human, he got Mary, this young lady who was fully human. But he also needed a heavenly dad, God the Father, who in the form of the Holy Spirit came upon her and she became with his child. Though in many ways it's a mystery, Jesus was fully human and Jesus was fully God at the same time. This is what the virgin birth tells us. Tells us how it happens. And there's so many passages of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was God. All things were made by Him without anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shone in darkness, and the world comprehended it, perceived it, followed it, worshipped Him not. John 1.14, we beheld his glory, Jesus incarnate, this man who is also God. We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. In Philippians 2, where Paul is encouraging people in humility, he says, don't forget this wonderful truth that Jesus, equal with God, thought equality with God, not to be robbery, yet he emptied himself, kenosis, he humbled himself, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on real flesh with no sin. And went to the point of the cross, even to death, that we might have a life. It's important. Even Jesus claimed to be God. You remember after his resurrection, sorry, after his resurrection, Thomas just didn't believe, couldn't believe it. It's too much to believe. And Jesus showed up and said, here, put your hand in my scar. Here, put your hand in my side. And when, Jesus, when Thomas did, Thomas fell on his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus welcomed and received his worship. Even before his death, the Pharisees were having such a hard time with Jesus because they were saying things that they had, they had not heard or at least said in a way that they had not heard. And he condemned their self-righteous lifestyle. And so they were questioning him. They, they were Sons of Abraham, not just Moses, not just sons of Moses. They went all the way back to Abraham, the first covenant with God. And they spoke with him, and Jesus spoke to them. He says, hey, listen, and, you know, basically, who are you? Who do you think you are? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you need to understand the significance of that. When Moses was being sent to Pharaoh, he said, who shall I say sent me? What are my credentials? And God gave him his name. God said, I am. You can say that, I am. 
and sent you. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming to be God. And whether that's confusing to you or not, it's certainly not confusing to them. They picked up stones to stone him because of his blasphemy or what they perceived to be his blasphemy. Jesus had to have at least one human parent or he would not have shared our humanity. But through the work of the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth, Jesus was able to be born fully human and yet without sin, fully divine. The angel tells Mary that because the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her, that for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. I will tell you that I came across a statement the other day that I really love. And it's not that Jesus is the Savior because of the virgin birth. The virgin birth happened because Jesus is our Savior. He is from the beginning, and he forever will be. No natural union of a human husband and a wife could ever bring God into the world. And that's the truth of the Christmas story, that the baby of Bethlehem is uniquely God with us. God took on human flesh. It was the miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary to affirm the full deity of Jesus Christ. You must affirm his supernatural virgin birth. We got it? That's point one. The mystery of the virgin birth. But it's also the meaning of the virgin birth. We need a savior. We need a savior who is fully man. And we need a savior who is perfectly sinless. And fully God. And Jesus is the only savior. The only savior. The mystery, we don't know how it happened. The meaning the perfect Lamb of God come into the world. Again, what the angel said, Luke 1, 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, or God saves. Same name as Joshua, Jesus. And he will be great. Listen to the proclamation. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There's your kingship. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Do you remember the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 that we have read many times, particularly at the Christmas season? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is the fulfillment of that. And when Mary heard this, she knew exactly that the prophecy was being fulfilled. Jesus, God saves. The throne of his father, David, as foretold for centuries. And yet, this one will reign forever. Jesus was God in the likeness of sinful flesh. God in the flesh. It's what incarnation means. Certainly, he was born, you don't think much of the majesty, which is the third point, the Mystery, the meaning, and the majesty. You don't think much of the majesty of Christ. He could have been born in a palace. He could have been born with all creation bowing at his feet. And yet this King of kings and this Lord of lords was born of a young virgin, espoused to a young just man who traveled to Bethlehem while pregnant and while there gave birth in a stable, a dirty stable, dusty roads that led to death on the cross. But it doesn't end at the death on a cross. It moves to the empty tomb. It moves to the ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father and reigning today. And it moves to his soon return. I was talking to some of you guys 
yesterday and we were talking about how bad things are in the world. Y'all know there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world, right? What's the world coming to? Can I tell you what the world's ultimately coming to? It's coming to the Lord Jesus. Listen to me. And by the way, in church, pretty much always the right answer is Jesus. We'll go ahead and throw that out there. All right. But what's the world coming to? There are those who deny that Jesus is God, and there are those who say, I'm not going to give my life to anybody. I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. Or there are those who, like, I'm going to seek my own pleasure. I'm going to, I, I, I don't care about this God or this Christmas. It's all made up. I'm going to believe in rationality. There are those who will deny creation. There are those who will deny our creator. There are those who will deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But they can only deny him so long. Because if you remember in Philippians chapter 2, when it says that though Jesus was equal with God, he thought equality with God, not robbery, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, and he took on the likeness of sinful flesh. He came to earth and he lived without sin. He went to the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sin. And here's the promise. There is coming a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What is the world coming to? Ultimately, it's going to come to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, either in judgment or in welcome and reward. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God doing what we could not do. Christmas is about bringing us hope, unshakable, peace, everlasting God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this Mary and this this birth of Christ there's a good bit of mystery to it we don't know how beyond what the scriptures revealed there's such meaning to it, our need to be saved, our needing a man to take our place, and yet needing a perfect man to take our place, to substitute, to pay the penalty for our sin that we through grace might be forgiven and may cleanse and have hope and have peace with God. And that one day, we, when we come to him, we are children of the king, but one day he will come and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what Christmas is about. I hope you know him. I hope you know him. I hope you know this Savior who came so that we might know God. Do you? If you do, will you tell someone else? There, there are people in your families and there are people in your homes. There are people who you work with. There are people that you see at the coffee shop or at the restaurant or at the grocery store. There are people all around you who have heard the name of Jesus, but they don't know him. They have heard some of the claims of Scripture, but they've never been drawn or convicted by the Holy Spirit to the point of repentance. And what God desires to do is to use us to be the conveyors of this glorious truth just like the angels proclaimed and the shepherds could not contain, Christ the Lord has come and he's come bringing salvation.
Isn't God good? Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your amazing love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we hadn't done anything to be worthy of you leaving heaven and humbling yourself and coming to earth and taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. Father, we hadn't done anything to deserve your living on this earth to uh, suffer the things that you suffered, not only the hunger and the thirst and the traveling and the pain and, the, and all the temptations just as we are uh, tempted yet without sin. And, but even, even the cross, Father, the death on the cross, perfect sacrifice, fully atoning for us. We, we have done nothing to deserve the love that you pour out upon us. And yet your love for us is so deep, so deep. And it is so displayed in a stable in a young virgin girl. It is so displayed in this small child to be raised by Mary and by Joseph, her husband. And so displayed in the life that you lived righteously, perfectly, sinlessly. And displayed in your death on the cross and soon to be displayed in your return. Father, you love us. I pray that we might love you in return wholly and completely with all of our hearts. And share that love with others. In your name I pray. Amen.